A, either they think they're doing a great job and they just don't have the self-awareness of this is what I, I could be doing better, or B, they're terrified of pointing out a weakness. But what they don't know is I can see it. <laughs> I can see your development opportunities. And if you don't bring it up, it's much it, it's much harder for me to be like, here's my list. Like, I don't want to be that person. Welcome to Pictures Up, the podcast where we talk about careers in film. Today, I'm talking with Thomas Wentworth, who has actually a really interesting perspective on this topic. Thomas is a graduate of the film program that I'm involved with, and uh, we worked together on a project called Secret of the Cave, where he served in a producing capacity back in the mid-2000s. Thomas now works at NBC Sky Castle, which is on the Universal lot. The details of his job description are a little bit complex, actually, but I think it's fair to say that he serves in what could be described as a producing capacity. Thomas really has a, a passion for those who are interested in careers in film, and he's actually spearheaded an alumni effort of the graduates of the film program that I'm involved with, and he and other alumni come back to the school to help the current students really make solid starts to their careers. And they, there's a lot of mentorship and education involved directly from the alumni. And uh, Tom is the one who has really spearheaded that. So anyway, it's a great episode, lots to learn. So let's go ahead and dive in. At NBC Universal, they have this thing called the Talent Lab, yeah. where it used it, when when GE owned the company, it was just professional advancement. It was as boring as you could think. So Comcast came in and, and really re envisioned how you treat your employees and you and and how to give them tools that are going to be relevant for them personally, but in the workplace. Yeah. So I just went through um, one that was focused on design thinking, and we were down in Orlando um, doing kind of a, a mock challenge where we had eight hours. Um, okay. To basically get our assignment from the executive sponsor, as a team, go through the entire process of design thinking and then present it at the end. Right. So um, like an accelerated, yeah, intense. Yeah. We ended up doing four of those, but this specific one, we were down in Universal at the theme parks, and we were working with uh, two of the executives that oversee the part of the company that sells vacation packages, not just park tickets, but let's make sure that we combine hotel and. The park, maybe a couple park experiences and restaurants and spas and, and make sure that we are capturing the entire thing as a destination, not just a one-off. So they're aggregating the services. Yes, yeah. because they're trying to compete with Disney, who has completely cornered the market on right. thinking of the total experience as opposed to, let's go to a theme park. Right. Um, but a graph they threw up that I thought was very interesting, they, they basically broke out the entire cycle of a vacation. Everything from the initial ideation of what we want to do, the booking process, the uh, waiting period between when you book to the experience, okay, the experience, and then the post experience. Right. Thirty-four percent of the enjoyment of from that vacation comes from the time you book it to the time you start it. Yeah. There. So the longer you have in that period, it it's a plus and a minus because a part of it is like you have if you book a trip a year out you have an entire year right. of building expectation right. for that experience and you almost you almost for your own uh mental bandwidth you almost want to forget about it for a couple months so you're right. not just like obsessing because the yeah. longer you get excited about it the greater the chance you're going to be let down oh, when the thing true. actually happens you mentioned a company comcast mm which is part of NBC Universal Comcast, right? 
Well, Comcast is the parent company. Oh, Comcast is the parent. Yeah. Okay. So GE um, used to own NBC Universal in in addition to a ton of other assets and portfolios. Okay. So it was and GE, it, NBC Universal. Yeah, and and it was always a weird fit because GE makes electronics and they make jet engines, jet engines and they make yeah. ovens. If if you've seen Thirty Rock, they did a really fun. I thought they took it in stride and they really went after the dynamic of. You know, Jack Donaghy's whole thing was making that toaster oven or that microwave that I can't remember the exact specifics, but he came from a background that was very consumer product based. And all of a sudden now he's in charge of an entertainment company. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so there was always a weird struggle with leadership, not knowing what to do with that and what needed to prosper. Well, it was something way outside of their core competency. Exactly. Yeah. So close. So I, I don't I don't have the background on why or what the timing was, but I started working for the company in 2010 when conversations were already underway with various different people of, of who was going to acquire the 51% of, of NBC Universal to take it over from GE. Because GE basically just wanted to offload it and get a whole bunch of cash. So when it became evident that it was going to be Comcast, uh, I'm sure there's backroom negotiation with figuring out what the actual price was going to be for the acquisition. GE started jettisoning internal resources to make the company look more profitable to drive up the price. Oh, interesting. So on our level at the at the local TV station level, they were they were basically savaging newsrooms, uh, getting rid of valuable resources because they were just trying to cut some fat. Are you talking about hard assets or human resources? People. People. People uh, basically just trying to lower the bottom line as much as possible. Right. So um, they were trying to trim out any expense that they could afford to just to sort of squeeze out the... Yeah. Yeah. And it was... I got in because of that. Oh. Because there was a bunch of people on staff in my group that were let go because there was a mandatory across the board, you must get rid of X amount of people. But they still had the work to be done, so they had to bring in a freelance force to offset the workload. I see. I was one of those people. Okay. So I was there for a year, and in January of 2011, is it was like January 5 or 6 or something. So we came back from holidays, and it was still the final days of GE. Nothing had changed. You left one day, turned your lights off, came back the next day. There was a new logo up. There was really? new signage everywhere. There were new. There were like these little gift boxes on our desk with like these beautifully designed art books and the story of Comcast and uh, just. They, they came in overnight and completely said, this is a brand new place. And you had no idea of this. We like... had no idea. And I was a little bitter for a while. The, okay. the NBC Universal logo used to be the word NBC and then the peacock and the word Universal. Okay. And then like the thinnest little outline of a globe okay. around it. And it yeah. just, for me, it was, it was nice. so iconic. Yeah. And I was used to seeing it and I liked it. And they replaced it with just the word NBC Universal in what's called this rock serif font and it just it just was ugly and it didn't feel like the place that i thought i was working at right and so there was this weird transition series of months where we kind of felt like we're working for a different group of people and we don't get it um and they started so as it rolled out they, they started making changes with senior leadership and um, it took a long time to realize what they were doing, and really what they were doing was creating actually a more inclusive, a more creative, um, a more design-focused company, because Comcast really understood what it was like to be in the entertainment industry. Okay. And they started pouring money back into the television stations, 
They reversed a lot of bad decisions that had been made. They started dumping money into the theme parks, which is why we have the Harry Potter experiences. They started pumping mm. money into the studio. I mean, they, they literally did a 180 and said, where can we smartly invest to really turn the the jet engines on to get ahead? And it, and, and they weren't even the company that made jet engines. Exactly. So. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, but so it's really it's been kind of interesting to now see over the last couple of years we're starting to acquire we're, uh, on the on the local side we're acquiring new television stations. Um, Telemundo uh, just went from it was like twelve stations. We're now at like twenty nine stations. Whoa. Uh, Almost triple. Yeah, and in all the major media markets, we now have what's called a duopoly, where we have an NBC-owned station and a Telemundo-owned station working out of the same building, creating this kind of interesting um, infrastructure synergy, uh, but just kind of creating a a general market presence of these two things are working together and Mm. kind of stand together. So to summarize a little bit of what you've just said, like at first there was an initial resentment sort of that like – all of a sudden, there's a new boss, essentially, new big boss. And you questioned whether or not sort of they, if they understood. It seems like over time, y- you began to realize that, oh, wait, maybe they do know. Like, maybe they, <laughs> I've been a- adopted into a new family that actually understands what kind, what a family should be of mm-hmm. this variety. <laughs> Was there some moment when you realized that? Was that just sort of a slow realization? Or was was there any time when you're just sort of like, you know what? I think this is going to work out. I think it was a slow realization. Yeah. Um, over time, it one so for one, back when the acquisition happened, NBC was number four. We'd yeah. been, the, the network had been number one all through the Friends era, and we lost all of those tentpole properties within a three-year window. And the entertainment leadership just completely flatlined in trying to replace those franchises. If if you remember, they tried to follow friends with Joey. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, They they completely misfired and they they lost their footing. They lost the vision. So part of the process with Comcast coming in is they brought in some key players that slowly over time, they didn't try to replicate what had made NBC great in the past. They brought in things like The Voice. They leaned more heavily into Sunday Night Football. Um, they brought in uh, uh, America's Got Talent. Okay. Um, just these various things that were a little bit different that really found an audience, um, and they really they invested a lot. Uh, they invested a lot more into the Olympics and all these different things. And within five years, all of a sudden, now they were on top again. Hmm. And NBC has been the number one network. And now you have to slice and dice the demographics and how they get to the number one. But traditionally, in, in ever since the word, NBC has been number one for the last four years. Wow. I think this is the first year that we've actually passed in, uh, CBS in terms of total viewership as well as demographic viewership. Um, mm. So it, it wasn't immediate. It was it was kind of... There were, there were people much, much, much higher than me, it, you know, at the top of the, the, the pinnacle that set probably a five-year plan or a 10-year or 20-year plan and started turning all these little things individually from the programming Mm -hmm. side, from the internal culture side. The Talent Lab was a great example. There's so many people now that have had the opportunity to go through some kind of program. When you're in that room, it's it's a white room with a lot of color and they, they, they have an interesting logo and they have a very interesting brand point of view that makes you feel like you're part of something special. Hmm. Um, and it's that stuff. It, it it's cool that a company like that has this internal playground with professionals that I get to go to and do something completely different from my job. But then I go back to my desk and feel like I'm better equipped to do that. Yeah. Um, and also just seeing, 
seeing our films be successful is super cool. I don't work on the film side, but feel they've they've created a, they've created a community and a family where you feel like you do benefit from those successes. Mm. Well, that's you know one definition of teamwork is uh, making each other look good, right? Mm-hmm. And you feel like you're part of a team that's worth being part of because they make you look good, and hopefully you're making them look good. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> so, what do you do there? Um, my current title is the senior director of production for uh, the NBC Universal Sky Castle Group and LXTV. Breaking that down, so we support the local stations for NBC Telemundo and NBC Sports. Um, Sky Castle is a little creative agency nestled right in the middle of that, and we're brought in to help with multi-market media deals. So the individual stations can handle a local LA deal or a local Boston deal. You're talking about advertising. Advertising, yes. Yeah. So um, when when our salespeople go out into the marketplace and they find an advertiser who wants to run um, spots in, let's just say, LA, Dallas, and Tampa, Florida, um, they engage us. They send us a... a a production request for or a, a request for proposal an RFP right. that uh, basically lays out here's the advertiser here's their objectives here here's how much money they have um, and here's here's the assignment and so our group huddles we come up with interesting things that we can throw back at them we sometimes we try to tie it to properties on our air to make it feel a little more custom because we are bidding we are bidding against all the other competitors and you have a unique relationship with NBC Properties because you're part of NBC, NBC so navigating the legal of that part sometimes, hopefully Sometimes hopefully it's is actually harder. Oh, really? Uh, <laughs> actually, that does not totally surprise me. So there's a, there's a, there's a term called ambush marketing. Okay. So um, the Olympics. Advertisers pay hundreds of millions of dollars just to have the rights to use the Olympic rings to say we're the official sponsor. Okay. That's not even before they create anything or, or actually put anything on air or out they in, just can, into the world. They, they can't even put the rings up, but they have the ability to hire somebody to design the ring. Like They've bought actually nothing except for the ability to, to start to do something. Exactly. Right? The permission right. to they then take permission. the logo and use yeah. it. Exactly. So... There's, so also there's category exclus- exclusivity. So if Coca-Cola is the spon- is the official sponsor of something, yeah, they're able to use the logo and, and use athletes and say the name and they can do anything they want. Yeah, and we're talking about at the network level. At, at the network point. level, correct. Yeah. So down on our level, let's just say, um, for lack of better, we'll just say Pepsi wants to run spots during the Olympics. So legally, there's nothing that says we can't do that, but Pepsi wants to have some kind of Olympic association because it's the Olympics. And if Coke right. is doing it, why can't they? So what we try to do is try to, as the salespeople tell the uh, the clients in the room, we get you as close to the Olympic flame as possible without getting burned. <laughs> and what, what that a good enta- way to put it. And what yeah. that entails is we cannot use the rings. We cannot say Olympics. We cannot say gold, silver, or bronze. We cannot say games. We cannot say the name of the host city. We cannot say the name of the host country. We cannot show flags. We cannot show any of the main sports. So if we're this do- is this is like the game taboo. Have you played that? Yes. Uh, like, <laughs> but but it's like fifty things you can't right, say. Right. And you're like, the word is dog, and you literally can't say anything. Right. Other than like a snort, and you're supposed to get dog out of that. Right. Um. So while that sounds super complicated, yeah, it actually is kind of fun to see what we have come up with in the past. Okay. Um. One year, we were working with a toilet paper company, mm-hmm. um, and they wanted to do some content. It was it was a decent buy. 
so the story we ended up coming up with was about a family who uh, got up every morning. The, the parents got them up every morning to go to the to uh, I think I think the kids were like figure skaters and hockey players so okay. it was kind of the story of the family who was always together and on the move and it was aspirational and we ran it by our network legal contacts to make sure we were fine and they were just like you can do it but you have to take the mom out of the spot what because PNG is the official that category for the Olympics and they and their whole thing is about the moms of athletes and they didn't want to rock the boat with us having a mom-related thing uh, competing with it. That seems pretty general. It is super general. And so <laughs> at first we were devastated, but then we said, all right, fine, let's just take dad out of it too. And now we're just kind of getting the story through the kid's perspective. And they were fine with that. So <laughs> okay. So we're, we're like briefly like brushing past figure skating. We're alluding to the family. We're talking about this aspirational thing. And it was good. It was fine. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it's fun in the same way that the game is fun. <laughs> to boot. Like yeah. the fun is that you 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 got to be creative. And when Ex you're under the gun, you got to get your point across. Yeah. Well, still uh, abiding by a whole bunch of limitations. So I, I veered way into it when you asked me what I do. <laughs> so I run West Coast Production for... Um, the, the, the side of the our group that does short form commercial or, or branding content and also now I oversee um, the part of our company that does these half hour lifestyle shows we have a couple producers okay. in LA uh, and we have a show called First Look which is on a lot of NBC stations after Saturday Night Live it's a experiential lifestyle travel adventure food show uh, and then the other one is called Open House I'm, it's syndicated at different times different places but we go into places usually not less than 10 million dollars to just kind of do a, a walkthrough with either the realtor, if it's for sale, or the designer, or someone interesting. We try to, especially in LA, we try to find and get access to old Hollywood movies, uh, old Hollywood stars' homes. Oh, okay. Um, I think they just shot in Bob Hope's house. Okay. Uh, it's about to be renovated, so they got into there, and um, just stuff like that. So I, I spend a lot of time dealing with other people's stuff. <laughs> their emotions okay uh i i try to be a good manager and having a good relationship with each person so when they come to me i know i can help them figure out what they actually need as opposed to what they think they need mm. um so there's a lot of management there's a lot of of looking at the full team and also the influx of work and figuring out where it's going to go and then rearranging as necessary and I've also, I haven't given up the creative thing. So I, I still edit, I still write, I still do pitch decks. Um, there's one project that is very near and dear to myself and um, my creative director, Barrett, who's also been my best friend even from before working here. So okay. we, we work together a lot. So, so we do a project for Mercedes-Benz up in the Bay Area. They do a sponsorship on NBC Sports Bay Area um, in the spring sponsoring the Giants games and in the fall sponsoring the Warriors games. Okay. So we do a custom piece of freedom for them twice a year. Uh, I, we literally just shot the last one 10 days ago. Um, I think they're already on air. It's a super quick turn. So so it's uh, that's what I do. Every, I feel like every time uh, we talk about your job description, I am left feeling like, okay, now I think I get it. <laughs> and then we talk about it again. I'm like, oh, okay, now I think I get it. Um, so... 
just for a few points of clarity, when you started talking about advertising, I think for anybody listening to this, they're going to think of something pretty specific, you know, 30 second, maybe 60 second spots, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, TV commercials. And you did mention some other things, but it was pretty quick in a, you know, a, you, you sort of went through it real quick. But there, there's, there's actually long form content as well. And you mentioned some of the things that you do that a lot of what you're doing is sort of you're a pressure relief valve sometimes for people it sounds like and uh you help keep the ship steered on a course without hitting the rocks so who who do you report to and who reports to you sure so i report to uh the vice president of production operations for the sky castle and alex side um and he he's overseeing a ton of stuff uh, Sky Castle kind of so most everything he does is is purely in the operation space because with a lot of the other departments that he works with there are other creative people but in the Sky Castle world he we because we merged a couple years ago with their production group um, that's kind of his creative outlet um, he's a great boss hope he's listening uh, <laughs> no he, he's a good he's a good more I feel like he's more of a collaborator than a boss okay. because but when push comes to shove he is the boss and yeah. I respect what his decision is but he gives me the space to kind of own what we're doing and make decisions and and run with the ball and then he reports up to a you senior know what? Vice- i heard that when you get to add eggs to a cake mix no sorry <laughs> exactly uh, <laughs> sorry um, for that derailment but yeah I, I think everybody feels more fulfilled when their boss has the right amount like is willing to let you be invested in what you're doing mm-hmm. and not afraid if they need to pull you back onto the rails, mm-hmm. you know, but I think just everybody functions best when they feel like they have some degree of um, control and investment in, in what they're actually doing. So it sounds like you have that. It sounds like that's a good, good situation. So the other side of that, if you're familiar with corporate structure there, it, it's this very hierarchical. Yes. There's, <laughs> There's org charts, and people love yeah. to show off the org chart, and people get very offended with org, org charts because oftentimes. So okay, I report to a vice president. So on an org chart, then I'm right below him with a little line, and then right below me, there's everyone that reports to me. So I have four producers on the West Coast on the short form branded content side. I have two producers who are on the half hour lifestyle show side, uh, a production intern, and then our operations manager. I have a dotted line which means I'm not the primary manager, but I I have partial oversight. So dotted lines become interesting. This has been thought through. It pounded <laughs> with a rock since the beginning of time. <laughs> so if you th- so just imagine six different people kind of have a similar job. An org chart has to have someone who goes first and goes last. Right. And often someone who gets put last doesn't feel like they should be there. Um, anyway, well, it I, feels invalidating, right? Yes, feels like what I do isn't important if I'm the last one before there's nobody else. <laughs> exactly. One. Also, I have a creative director that reports to me as well. So we have a. So I have seven right now. Okay. Wait, eight, nine with the dotted. Um, but so to that point, there was someone who it was a it was a big meeting. He was a producer on the team. He'd been there for a little bit. They threw up the org chart. A producer had left, so we had an open head. That person previously had been above this person in an org chart so instead of shuffling they literally just took his name out and put open head okay and the producer that was still there was under open head <laughs> which that was someone that was a that was a moment that, that like, would i'm probably... sure they didn't mean that 
Yeah. Because that would be invalidating, right? Yeah. So, um, okay, well, that's that's interesting. So uh, you are, I, I'm just trying to step back and see how all this, it's a lot. Like it's, if, as an outsider, like it's a lot to sort of uh, think about and digest. But you, you are, um, you have quite a number of people that report to you and you report to somebody. Um, but it sounds like you are, the things that the people who report to you, the things that they're doing are pretty big projects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like, like our, our group in total does about 200 projects a year. Now we have three other producers in New York, so it's not just my team. Okay. But we're we're steadily busy. Um, Lucas Tanaka, who uh, uh, a, a fellow SVAD graduate, he now yeah. actually now is on my team. Okay. He just finished a project um, that it was a beast. We for it was for a food company who wanted to make these. They wanted to tell an authentic story through family and food that okay. that featured the product, but really did have the family story infused in, into right. it, and how food brings us together. Right. It was going to run on NBC and Telemundo, okay. so we had to do it in two different languages. Okay, so actually produced, produce not, it, not, right? Not, not, not just dub it later. No, it had, because anything. Telemundo does not run anything that's not in Spanish. Okay, yeah, they don't do subtitle stuff, so we had to figure out how to pull that off. Um, then the the longer form pieces were going to be on the internet, on our station sites, but we were also going to have uh, drivers on air that would send people to go watch it. Then we had to do a 15-second version and a 30-second version so the salespeople could place them where they needed to go. We needed six-second trailers for social. We had three... So, okay. We had three, basically, stories uh, as part of the series. Right. Then you break that into NBC and Telemundo, English and Spanish. Right, so now we have six. Two. Yeah. Then we realized that the food company has the same product in all the markets that this is happening in with different packaging. One of them has one name, one has another. So that six just became 12. Oh boy. (laughs) Uh, Then from there, you have your on-air pieces, which now have to feature specific verbiage per market because we're sending them to the station site, not NBC.com, but NBCLA.com backslash this project. Right. So now each of those versions has to be versioned out even more. It, so they're so they're tailored to the market that they're running in. Exactly. Is so, that essentially a tag? Like um, at the end? It's when or? so part of it was that we decided to have the talent do it live. Okay. Um I don't think she read all the tags, but in in, in the middle there's a to camera where she's she kind of like sets up what the, the project is and says go to something to the equivalent of go to this website to see it but mm-hmm. it was graphics underneath her that had the nbcla.com slash project or nbc new york backslash thing okay um so fortunately we didn't have to do all those reads with her which we have had to do before in the past okay then we had integrations into some of our local market live shows that all needed different formatting so at the end of something that should have been when we went into it we were thinking we're making three mini documentaries and when we came out the other side, we had 45 deliverables. <laughs> and that's not even getting into the digital web banners and any of that stuff. So um, why did I start talking about this? Well, you're talking so about Lucas. Big, yeah. big projects. So yeah. it's not just going out and shooting a film and editing and sending it off. 
it's an entire ecosystem yeah. that has clients involved and agencies involved and salespeople involved and our creative team and it's a massive it's a, it's a huge bus filled to the brim with people that has to get from point A to point B. Yeah. And so the job that my that the producers on my team has to do essentially the the first and foremost is project management and they're kind of the person in the driver's seat that makes sure that we all get there and we're happy okay. <laughs> with the end result. Um, so so yeah, there there are big projects that often I don't know how to tell the person at the beginning how big it's going to be, what you're going to do, how you're going to do it. Um, so there's a lot of learning together that we have to do. Are you a little like an air traffic controller? I'm an air traffic controller who's also on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like I, I don't feel like I'm a because I I go in the field on pretty much every shoot. Okay. As well, I'm in the trenches. So yeah, it, maybe it's more like a helicopter flying alongside as opposed to like. I don't have the luxury of just sitting in my office and like looking at everything and calling it in. Right. Um, often I'm I'm working from the road, uh, which just adds an extra layer of stress. Gotcha. But it's fun. I, I I would not trade the travel part for anything. Sounds like a lot of multitasking. What 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 makes you good at your job, or what what skills are required for your job? <laughs> um, what makes me good at my job? I have always had. I've always been motivated by the fear of failure. Yeah. And I didn't start out doing this. I started there as basically an editor. Okay. Um, and so someone else was handing me, okay, here's your project. And I would figure out how to do it and then move on. And um, I think one of my biggest strengths is multitasking and, and having a very learning things quickly and then being able to expand my bandwidth. Okay. That's not always a good thing because I often feel like, great, I have a bandwidth of 10. Let's go to a 12. <laughs> uh, but I think my 10 is different than other people's 10. I can do a lot of things simultaneously. Yeah. It potentially drives the people around me crazy because when I hit that 12, my my walk goes up to the fast walk. My responses get clippy. <laughs> right. Uh you know, I'm I've been told that I'm not a fun person to be around when I'm in that in that place. Oh, interesting. But I can get it done. I'm able to do full time the job that we've been talking about. Part of my job I do payroll for all the West Coast stuff, which oh, wow. includes doing I9s for every single person we hire. Which, if you've ever done an I nine, it's not easy, and it requires people to actually intelligently fulfill their part of the form. Which oh, you would be shocked with how people cannot fill out forms. Okay. So often there's a lot of follow up, like, please send me a photocopy of your ID because I have to fill out this form. Um, also, I do all of, like I work with our finance team and making sure everything is reconciled properly and just the vast back end. Anyway, I'm so I'm I'm mentally able to do all of that. Plus, bring in something like the roundtable or any one of these other things that I. So I fill my work life up to a ten, and then I'm like, great, let's add in this other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's a blessing and a curse because I challenge myself consistently with putting as much in there as I can, and hopefully one of these days I'm someday I'll break. It wasn't this year; it was close. Um, and also I. But you I, thrive on that. It sounds like. I do, but at what cost? Like, like well. Like, it sounds like it can get to a point where you don't feel like you're thriving, but it sounds sort of like you would feel a little bit empty if you didn't have a lot going on. Sometimes it feels like a rally car going through a course twice as fast as it's supposed to, Okay, and you're just smashing mirrors off and wheels are flying off and the windshield's broken. <laughs> sure, you, like, roll across that finish line, but was it worth it? And, but there's and, carnage. And, yeah. And, and was anything actually done to the level that it could have been done if you had just said, you know what, I'm going to I'm gonna stay at an eight 
<laughs> and just make sure that this stuff gets done right. Right. And so, so when I have moments of reflection, sometimes I wonder if I did a disservice to all of it because I didn't say no or I took on too much. Well, here's a question. How much has the job description been affected by your skill set? 100%. Okay. As I mentioned before, I started as an editor. Uh, a producer position opened up. I applied, got it. Um, but from really from that point forward, I tried to do things differently. Um, I was I was kind of our first producer on the West Coast to exhibit bandwidth. <laughs> when okay. I started, there were two other producers who they would take one project at a time and just act like they were overwhelmed. Mm. And we had a senior producer who was an, an older gentleman who didn't have editing skills. Yeah. So he was given the big, big projects to really focus on and, and project management, bringing people as needed. And I then was kind of given almost everything else to do one and a half man band. So I, com- I kind of completely changed the profile of the type of people we looked for when we were hiring. Mm. Um, so when I got into a leadership position, I wasn't looking for people with low bandwidth or people who, who, could, who just had one. I was looking for people who could do it all because that's how I came up in it and that's how I felt was the necessary skill to thrive. Yeah. So I feel like I've had an opportunity to reshape our group in just helping bring those types of people along as opposed to a traditional format. I see. So you, you see yourself as having the bandwidth, but that's also what you look for when bringing people in. Yes, and it's really yeah. unfair because I assume other people can do something as fast as me. Mm. Um, I'm a really fast editor, and because I've, been, because I've been there enough and I've been through, I've just figured out my shortcuts. It's a, if you think of a keyboard, when you're new to a keyboard or a computer, you spend time like individually hitting keys. When you've been on a key, the same keyboard for 10 years, you have hotwired the entire thing so you can blink and something happens. Right. And that that's kind of what I feel like I've gotten into because I just I instinctually know what's going to work and how to do it. Yeah. So it's really unfair for me to be in my office like, man, why don't I have that edit? It's been 20 minutes. <laughs> when like, sure, maybe calm down. Maybe someone needs four hours. <laughs> right. Or maybe they can't be writing a script while also doing payroll. Like that kind of thing. Um, right. So I, I have to continually remind myself to allow others to to work in their way in, in a reasonable fashion. Is it... Uh, this is sounding so narcissistic, by the way. <laughs> well, is it... No, but I, I think, you know, uh, we've worked together going back a long time, you know? You, you worked on Secret of the Cave, and, like, um, I've always seen you, really, as somebody who is willing to just sort of look unblinkingly at the challenge and be like, okay, well let's do this let's make this work (laughs) let's make this happen so it doesn't surprise me do you feel like you have a hard time disconnecting from stuff do you do you get most of your satisfaction out of your work life or do is there some sort of delineation or is there a blend or that's the new hot word in employment is work-life blend not work-life balance (laughs) um i am blended to a gray Okay. Uh, I, I I take my work. I I have a wor- I have a personal cell phone and a work cell phone. Okay. And at which of both uh, you probably can't hear it, but they've both been go- going off through yeah, this entire interview. Yeah, no, leave them. Leave okay. them out. Um, at one point, because you have to, you can get your work email on your personal phone. You just have to go through some steps and sure. So there was a time when I had it, and I actively decided to separate that again. Okay. So if I sometimes I want to go to dinner and leave my work phone at home. Okay. I do that sometimes. Okay. Usually I have both. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. People call this like my my drug dealer burner phone or something. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm always on the go. I'm 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 terrified that I'm missing an email. 
one of the things that drives me crazy about myself is I'm sitting at home at 9.32 and I'm refreshing my email, even though I refreshed it at, re- refreshed it at 9.28. Right. Just that kind of like constant, like, maybe there is something. Um, and, I, you know, I do that with, I mean, it's it's with roundtable stuff. It's with other projects. It's it's not just work. It, I don't have this, this, and this. It all kind of just goes together and it's all happening simultaneously. Um, so you have personal work and you have work work. Yeah. <laughs> and I do both at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Um, sorry, boss. <laughs> well, it seems to me like you're getting everything done. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've I've read about, and you know, it's a topic of interest to me. The, the idea of work life balance and or work life blend, or however you want to talk about it. And one thing that I came across a while ago, which was very interesting, is that it's not everybody by a long shot. But there's a certain there's a certain personality or a certain kind of person who can actually just sort of work like those ten or fourteen or sixteen hour days or whatever, and they are not negatively impacted by it like for uh, because they actually like it <laughs> uh and i think for even even for most people who enjoy their work like they fatigue at a certain point and with most things in life they're harder to enjoy once you've re- reached a certain point of fatigue mm-hmm. but um but they found that there were certain people who didn't burn out because they just kind of dug being doing the thing that they were doing all the time like they liked being involved with and doing the thing that they were doing like just about literally all of their waking moments is that you yeah when you put it that way so you've you've been you've taken a break this semester yeah so you haven't you have successfully unplugged from some of the craziness of planning this event right i feel like when i saw you saturday night i feel like emotionally i just came in hot and you're like how you doing i was like and I feel like we, the couple times, especially yesterday afternoon, we passed you in the promenade, and I just had this feeling of having to have an emotional, eh. Oh, I don't, yeah, for some yeah. reason, I guess I saw you as someone who I needed to vent to. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. Because it was things that was they were rattling around my brain, and they were things that I, I was upset about, and I wanted to find a solution. And every time I talked about it, I was hearing it, and my and the gears were just turning. Yeah. 20 minutes after I ran into you on the promenade, I was walking somewhere else and uh, trying to find my keys because I'd lost them. Yeah. And it, it, like, the solution to the thing who I, that I'd been bitching about for a day and a half, like, not the, a solution, like, just hit me out of nowhere. Yeah. And I think it's because my brain was obsessed with yeah. the problem and not letting it go. And eventually it just all of a sudden, like, what about this? I was like, great, thanks. And the, the rush that I got from picking up that idea hmm. completely swept away the stress and the negativity and the frustration that I'd been talking about for so long. And it really just kind of gave me this extra like, oh great, well now let's run again. So I don't think I get burnt out, I think I get frustrated. Hmm. And, I, and, I, and then I get obsessed with the frustration and figuring out why. And then something about that process inspires me and then I put it back into whatever speed and take off again so i never hit that point where my brain gets rid of it um i think i'm just as engaged and active when i'm upset about it because i want to fix it and like you were saying before about seeing the challenge and saying let's do this yeah i think that's just i think that's how my brain's wired yeah well it's a, a long time ago i i listened to an interview or i think it was an interview with an author of a book 
about Rupert Murdoch, uh, you know, which polarizing <laughs> but giant character, yeah. you know, within the media landscape. Um, and if if my memory serves correctly, the author felt like after sort of observing, like he got a lot of personal access to Rupert Murdoch and watching him like buying newspapers and like not at the newsstands <laughs> like <laughs> walking down to the five and dime <laughs> yeah uh <laughs> and he got the sense that that there was a strategy at some level but more than a strategy it was just like there was an mo like a way that he was wired there there was just a way that he functioned in dealing with the world where uh like it, it was almost like it wasn't necessarily that he thought about whether or not it was a good idea to buy this newspaper. He just saw a certain situation, a certain set of things that maybe he wasn't even consciously aware of that like lit up the right green light in his brain. It was like, this, <laughs> this happens. And it sounds like what you're saying to me is a little bit related to that, that the way that you function in the world is... Uh, you're you're sort of functioning on a set of um, rules that are wired into your brain, and it, uh, I think there's a word for one of the things you've described, which is obsessive obsessive compulsive. Like once you see a thing, you can't your brain really can't take a break until you figure out some solution or some way to put closure mm -hmm. or something on that. Um, I think one of the things that keeps me from being completely obsessive compulsive about something is that I often am obsessive compulsive about five things simultaneously and so my okay. brain ricochets between them okay and so so I so I don't just sit down and tackle one problem yeah I kind of just like fill up on a bunch of them <laughs> and kind of let all these little things that I'm just so they can run in about. parallel yeah or perpendicular <laughs> right so uh, how does it feel to be like that like I've honestly I've never thought about I feel like I've done more self-reflecting in the last year yeah year and a half than yeah. ever <laughs> so this specific thing I've never really thought about it. um I don't know I don't know any different <laughs> you know sometimes you don't know you're in pain because you don't know any different mm. sometimes it's just normal yeah uh, I'm not saying I'm in pain I'm just saying sometimes you don't know it until it's not there well it's like asking a fish about water they're like what right. water <laughs> right um i just i guess i just don't know any different it yeah i'm figuring out like i'm trying to figure out why i get into these crazy places where i have co-workers being like yeah you were kind of a wreck <laughs> on wednesday um it's because i all this was kind of happening simultaneously and this is how my my body my brain deals with it um i wouldn't say it's fun it's not fun uh, no, in the moment knowing that I'm doing something that's negatively impacting someone because of the way I'm handling the situation. Oh, yeah. But I can't do it any differently. I, I have some I have some very good close friends who we've, we've been through many, many, many life cycles, and we've been through the up and the down. We've talked about it, and um, I, I, I'm completely aware in the moment when I'm being a wretched person. Mm-hmm. But there's nothing I can do about it, and then I and then I go through the same cycle. Where on the then I'm embarrassed on the aftermath, mm. um, and I I feel like part of that has has kind of driven me to sample certain vices or use certain things as crutches because sometimes it kind of quiets the noise a little bit. What's the noise? 
Well, it's it's the it's the OCD plate spinning. Okay. It's yeah. the you know, here's the the choir of 12 things that could be better right. or that is irritating me because it it's not working correctly. Um and trying to come up with the solution. And I, look, I understand this is this is making it sound way more intellectual and intentional <laughs> than it actually is. So, for the record, I don't actually sit there with self-awareness being like, hmm, I'm upset about this because I'm figuring out how I can make it better. No, I'm like a, sometimes just a frothing, horrible person because I'm stuck in the middle of a situation that I can't fix. Well, I think most of us, I think most of us have experienced where you're doing something and you're fully aware of doing the thing that you're doing and want to do it in one part of your brain. <laughs> And then there's another part of your brain that's like standing back with its arms folded and looking at you and like, what exactly are you doing right now? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But um, so it, I guess is maybe this is a weird way of looking at it. But do you feel like uh, is, is it is it uh, is it sustainable? Like I've, I've oftentimes and a lot of times, certainly for me, I'm terrible at multitasking. <laughs> Um, I, 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 if I have a, a power, an intellectual power, it has to do with focus and the ability to block out things from the side. Mm. And that, you know, the, the bad part about that though, is task switching is miserable for me. Like I, I lose time and energy when I have to sw stop thinking about one thing and open another box over here and get it out <laughs> and spread it all over the work area. But, um, and I, and I wonder if that, like, I've always seen you, obviously you're a very multifaceted person, so I'm not trying to condense you to one thing, mm. but going through classes with you and then working with you subsequently, I find you to be a very technically inclined person, yeah. very methodical. Mm. Um, you know, you can look at a camera and I feel like you can visualize every single bolt and nut and screw and, and like you, you transformed this bus. I wouldn't know where to start because I don't think I have the ability to slow down enough to look at one thing and just stare at it and figure out how it goes together and what it could be because I'm doing like this crazy flailing thing. So I, so I think it, it makes sense to me that you do what you do and that you do it to such high level because you're able to have that laser like focus in the moment. Yeah. Well, uh, well, that's very kind. I think, um, <laughs> you know, there's every, with everything, there's a good, well, not with everything, but with most, <laughs> most things, there's a, there's an advantage and a disadvantage. And I think, yeah, I think you summarized that in a reasonable way. I think, um, how, uh, at, at the risk of getting more, uh, intellectual or more, uh, reflective, you say you've been reflecting on things like what, what do you think, um, what do you think the, an improvement in your world would look like? So I think it was, I think it was the first roundtable we did a redo interview um, yeah. from our life yes. after school. Yeah, and, and that that interview is why I'm asking your, this question actually. So the first interview we did was very guarded. Yes, it was very. I was in my workplace. It was just everything about it just felt wrong. Yeah, and so then we went into the roundtable and we were having kind of this emotional high experience. And I ran down to Ledford and we did this thing and there was just something safe about so, yeah. something inviting saying. Be vulnerable. Like yeah. say things that because I'm very, I'm very usually very guarded in what I say, yeah. and people can tell because often the more guarded I'm being, the more staccato 
I get okay. because every word is being chosen very specifically. Yeah. And when I've dated, I'm in a relationship right now where one of our fights about four months ago, I was choosing every word very carefully. And he was like, just say what you mean or what you're thinking. I don't want to hear this filtered bullshit. Right. Um, so so that specific, that second interview that we did, I felt like was was kind of, it was therapeutic. Yeah. Because I hadn't really done that before. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like I've, I have been able to do that more. Yeah. So here's why I bring it up. Um, so we're doing this thing called Project Roundtable, where we commissioned the documentary class to make six pieces of content, and there's 12 people in the class, so they paired okay. up. Okay. And in a writer's room fashion, they have plotted out uh, an arc, and then they've assigned themselves, like, I'm chapter one, I'm chapter four. So they're kind of going in with these perspectives to make a thing. So um, I was in between running here, this stuff, and um, Bryant and Skylar grabbed me and said, "Hey, we'd love to, we'd love to include you in our piece. Swing by the lab." Um, I was late, of course. Uh, I came in, I think, three times and immediately ran out to do something. They were very gracious. So I come in, turn my phones off, I sit down. They're gonna kill me for saying this, but uh, they <laughs> they were very nice and polite, and and uh, they were like, "Okay, well, Nathan said um, that you don't really like to talk to talk about yourself." And I went, oh, oh, really? And he goes, yeah, well, well, he's just said, you know, don't ask too personal questions. Mm. Because I remember, I, I and I then all of a sudden I realized, like, things that I have said in the past or the ways that I have reacted, I try to deflect attention or I try to minimize, marginalize things that I've done. Yeah. Um, because I just don't feel, didn't feel comfortable standing there and accepting it and yeah. saying, I'm worth this. And that was just such a powerful moment of these guys very humbly being like, well, you don't like talking about yourself. And in, I understand where they were coming from, but it hurt. It's like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm an open book. I have no problem talking to someone and telling them who I am and, and, or at least that's what I thought of myself. Yeah. I'm an open book. And I get, and so through self-reflection sent over the last couple of years, I've been realizing that A, I wasn't that open, mm. even when I thought I was, and it's okay to be. And so in that moment with that first interview, I looked straight at him. I said, ask me any question you want. And he had his six, you know, but I, I kind of took myself off the chain and I just said, just ramble. Uh, and so we, we went, I, I, I don't know how long it was. It felt really long. Uh, he asked a question like, what does round table mean to you? And I gave him like a 10 minute oration on like that went everywhere from like, me trying to prove something to myself, me trying to prove myself to you still, mm. me trying to prove something to my parents, that type of stuff. Yeah. I just kind of let myself go there and it felt really good. Mm. And something else I've noticed is in trying to get alumni together for the round table, I haven't believed in the vision enough to be brutally honest with people that this is a lot of work. Mm. And that is something that I've, that I, um, I've made a conscious decision to accept to actually accept the fact that the round table is a year round part-time job. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and I am doing a disservice to it, to myself, to the students, to everyone if I don't get people who who want that to be a part of it. We need pe we need alumni to come on board. It I I'm going to get burnt out if if it continues being um the Tom show. Uh I was telling someone like next year I'm going to have someone focused on the opening party. Mm -hmm. I don't have mm -hmm. the bandwidth to book alumni, 
do the travel, do the schedule, rebook alumni. Two and a half weeks before the party, I was like, oh, now I have to plan a party. So we end up with just like a meh event, whereas if I could have just articulated to someone, hey, I need you to do a party. It's going to be a lot of work, but you're going to start in July, and you're going to have a really good time doing it. We would have had an amazing party. Yeah. And that's because I wasn't able to look at someone and inconvenience them. But we have tons of people who don't mind being inconvenienced if I'm just yeah. honest about it. Right. So so my effort to be, maybe the nice word is humble, or enable to really be honest about what we're doing negatively impacts the entire thing and ultimately could just kind of creates a weird vibe. So... Yesterday, I I kind of like saw that. I was like, you know what? Maybe I should just be honest about it and not s- continue squirming <laughs> when someone asks how much time goes into doing this. Mm. And that came out from the interview. Yeah. Yeah. Literally mid-interview is when in my head I was kind of well out loud. You that was what was happening during that interview. I was actually talking to myself. I was talking myself into being okay with just letting it out and and admitting it's a it's a lot so how did that how did that go how did that feel do you feel like um it it felt it felt good it it also i keep using the word um narcissistic <laughs> okay there we go <laughs> uh, I, it felt good but it felt weird because it 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 when you give yourself the permission to say you're good at something if you haven't done that for a while it makes you feel like you're doing something wrong yes or that you're now turning extra attention onto yourself and so i guess maybe that's maybe i just need to stop saying this sounds narcissistic because maybe it just should just come out and be fine um so it was fine it was good uh i did a second interview with cameron he's doing the the second okay he's doing the last chapter okay so the the first one was yesterday this one was today and I kind of already went in with that same mentality of like, well, I've broken the seal. I might as well do it already, you know. Um, and he asked me, and I think I regurgitated some of the same stuff I had done in the last one. But he asked me a question about what does Southern mean to you? Okay. Or what 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 did Southern? Or some, some The question was phrased something like that. Yeah. I thought for a second and talked through a couple things. And then one of the things I kind of went into was Southern, especially the film program, helped me helped me through the coming out process in okay. figuring out in just being able to be myself and also still have connections especially when you come into it with the presupposition that no one is going to accept you right and so in a very quick summary i told the story of my documentary class the drag queen documentary yeah and the feeling that i felt when i said it out loud what i wanted to do and the look on your face of like processing but also trying to be respectful um just that process and i remember uh we showed the the when we screened the film there were people that showed up just to see that yeah because they'd heard about it and they wanted to see the final product and there was a really engaging conversation afterwards i think yeah and no one was disrespectful um i i know for a fact there's probably some people watching that 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 was their first time seeing a drag queen or seeing at least the middle part of the process yeah um i would count myself among that <laughs> And and that was that was such a special moment for me because as a newly out and kind of coming into this the the gay community and figuring out you know drag is a very big component 
of the yeah. gay community because it's a form of self-expression and it's a and, and it's a unique form of entertainment that was so so I was coming into this world like oh this is cool this is special to me now I'm in a class with a completely different set of people yeah. and I'm being asked to make an authentic story and I chose to do that and and I and I was terrified because I thought people wouldn't understand it or they wouldn't like it or um, they just would shun the subject of the film which by extension would be shunning me sure so kind of in my last semester after I'd been through so many rounds of just trying to make of trying to be affirmed that these people did accept me I don't know why but I decided to in a very tangible way put that exact thing on the table one final time almost expecting people to smash it with a hammer yeah um, and so to go through the process and, and be able to show that part and have it respectfully received and artistically complimented, um, it meant a lot. And I, and I feel like some of those very last things, I mean, uh, I, I made a senior thesis film that was not deemed appropriate to show at the end of year oh, right. show. Yeah. It was sort of horror genre. Yeah. Yeah. It's terrible, by the way. I still have it. I, I digitized it, and I have it on Dropbox, and it. every now and then I'll watch part of it, and I'm just like, this is god-awful. <laughs> uh, but Nick Lovato's produced it. I directed it. Uh, we shot it on the DVX100. Come yeah, on. Yeah. Uh, you know, Nick, Nick was someone who I uh, really looked up to. In fact, I, I didn't really have a sense of humor or personality or, or, a, or a curated sense of personality before secret of the cave and i remember spending a lot of time with nick and picking up on his humor cadence oh yeah he would say things that were really funny but he would say it in a way where he was just gonna put it here and walk away and if you thought it was funny and laughed great if you didn't maybe you didn't know it was supposed to be funny right and so there was kind of a interesting safety there yeah. that i feel like i poached a little piece of um and and i feel like i got fairly close with nick through doing creative stuff and um, but again it was still that we we weren't we weren't buddies I didn't I, I, I didn't feel like it was a best friend situation kind of thing or I didn't know if it was mutually um, if it was a mutual friendship right so when our film didn't make the cut I kind of had a little defiance of like what let's show it anyway and Nick was like yeah and so the two of us together put on our own film festival of stuff that we had worked on together or at least individually worked on right and we booked the auditorium we printed up cards we invited a bunch of people without asking permission or telling anyone what we were doing uh a week before after all this promotion had gone out uh dean williams pulls me into the office i think with you and was like what is this why did you have there was an element of caught off guard and why are you doing this and once we explained that it was literally like we you would only know about it if you'd received a hand a postcard and we were personally handing them to people we weren't putting them out somewhere for people to wander in it was it was a contained environment and i and i promised to make sure that no one was there who i didn't personally know and vouch for and they allowed it to go forward and and that so so it was it was a collection of all these things that kind of happened end of senior year that i feel helped close that chapter in a very positive way where i feel like at right at the very end is kind of where you know that that final the film resolution happened where all of a sudden it's like oh i actually do feel accepted i do feel part of the community mm. i do feel like i'm good enough like all these random things that for 
3.9 years hadn't been there. And so when I really think back at my time at Southern, that's the first thing that always comes into mind. It's kind of that closing chapter of finally feeling emotionally like I got accepted. The reason I bring up Nick was because he was such an advocate, not only for the film that we built, but I just felt like we were in a place where, of course, friends, of course we're going to tackle the world together. And so it was almost like I, I felt a little stupid, like maybe I'd gone through many, many years of having a friend that I doubted and didn't feel like it was a friend. Right. And I, I, I still have an element of that now. There, You know, the people that I come back here and hang out with after sessions uh, with the roundtable stuff, I love so much. I love just going to someone's house or meeting up at a restaurant or bar or somewhere and, and just kind of being there. I still have that feeling of, are we friends? I like you, but I can't... Uncertainty. And, and the more we do it, the more I kind of like am relaxing and just like, just chill out, dude. Just be in the moment. <laughs> They're your friends. They like you. <laughs> Fine. That's um, interesting. So it, it, yeah, it, I guess what I'm saying is a, a, a huge part of my life has been self-doubt that just rides in the sidecar. Yeah. And so as we chip away at these little things, like this interview, like being able to say it out loud, yeah. um, I feel like I'm just kind of slowly detaching that sidecar and eventually it's just going to careen off <laughs> over a cliff and be gone. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for now it's still there. And again, maybe that's one of the reasons that keeps it's the anxiety that keeps the bandwidth running as high as it does. I was going to ask you that you just <laughs> made that connection. What, what do you think the connection is there? The, the connection is, is still trying to fix these things like attendance on the round table or getting word out about the app. Those are small cogs and those yeah. are, those are much more easily fixable because you spend 20 minutes running around it and you come up with some solutions. Yeah. I don't think I've even gotten to the big cogs yet. There's a lot of, there's there's big ones that are still there that it takes so much time to orbit, to get your head around, to start brainstorming how to fix it, to then implement it. It's probably going to be a lifelong journey of just tackling one and then moving on to the next bigger cog. I haven't even gotten into my relationship, like mentally, I haven't even gotten into my relationship with my family and just a lot of stuff there, which I'm sure is probably next step in 10 years. Uh, but the round table, is, has, I think, has represented a lot of that emotional work of the anxiety of the the feelings that I felt then and coming back and having a do-over at just trying to find my place in all of it, which it makes sense that I still feel uncomfortable in a social setting with these people who I felt uncomfortable with because I didn't feel like they would like me. So, of course, I've put myself back in the exact same position I've done a bunch of stuff to be like, hey, great, aren't I neat? And the second that the work is done and I just have to sit there and I don't have a purpose or a thing to run off and do, I just get, you know, it's the, it's the self-doubt that pops back yeah. up. So do you feel like that um, that quest for acceptance or validation, is that the steam in your locomotive? Probably. Yeah. Well, I hesitate to say this because I don't want to, you know, pull the release valve and, you know then what are you going to do? But, uh, Bye. <laughs> but yeah, I, I feel like, um, I, I think, y you know, I, I haven't walked in your shoes, you know, so I, I only know what I know through observation, but it's my perception that, that you have a lot of respect, that, that there is a lot of respect for you within our community. 
I, I think you are among the most respected uh, members of our community. And I think you know that at some level. That's the weird, odd thing is I'm yeah. not oblivious to that. Yeah. There's a part of me that that is at least aware of that, but it is coupled with this other thing. And, and that's that's the truly bizarre thing about the human mind is that we all have baggage. We all have these things that yeah. we just can't get rid of no matter we can get rid of them it just it's it's the work and i think i've chosen to self-therapy yeah. <laughs> as opposed to going to someone which there's i think therapy is a wonderful thing and everyone should do it but i think i have chosen to i'm, I'm a fairly self-aware person my, my boss actually point like one of the things i love is the performance review that we have to do at the end of each year yeah um as a manager i review my team's performance reviews as an employee i fill one out so we have three, we have four sections, an overview, your strengths, your weaknesses, and your goals. My longest section is my development opportunity section. Sorry, weakness, they use the term development opportunity. Right, right. I dig into that because that's the place that actually matters on this form. Mm. Ever, like my boss knows what good, like what I'm good at. I don't need to spend time writing, like I'm really good at editing. I'm really... <laughs> Duh. Uh, it's that's that's kind of fluff. Like you put that on there for employees to be able to feel like they can they can stand out. Um, but it's the opposite with every single person on my team. That's the shortest section. Yeah. On theirs, the development opportunities, because people are like, a either they think they're doing a great job and they just don't have the self awareness of this is what I I could be doing better, yeah. or b they're terrified of pointing out a weakness. Right, because then then it's on the radar. Right. But what they don't know is I can see it. <laughs> I can see your development opportunities. And if you don't bring it up, it's much it, it's much harder for me to be like, here's my list. Like, I don't want to be that person. Right. So I feel like I have great productive conversations with my boss because I've done his job for him. Right. And then we can go through and talk about the and he can add some stuff on. I'm not I'm not one hundred percent infallible. Um so I feel like I'm a fairly self-aware person that t puts a lot of mental energy into at least un at least knowing about it. So to your point, I know it. You're just it it it's like it's like a it's like a it's like a dark blanket that settles over our emotional and mental parts of us and you can poke holes in it to let light in, but you've still got all this other and and so it's just it's it's slowly kind of removing that dark cobweb cloudy thing and i don't think you'll ever 100 percent have it i think that's just the the core of mental illness is mm. knowing like what we were talking about before with with in a moment where i know i'm being an irrational unkind person or not pleasant to be around yeah. i don't want to be that person but you just can't help it and the line between me and someone who lives on skid row is maybe I'm not to the degree, but I'm definitely like <laughs> if I if if I didn't work on it and went further down that road and let the cloud settle in, I could totally see someone like me really suffering from a strong mental illness that became incapacitating, which mm. it's a spiral that you know, it ends up in a bad place. Are you talking about anxiety or something else? Um, I mean, I don't. I have not been professionally diagnosed with anything, so I'm just using yeah. the word mental illness because I think we're all fairly 
sick right <laughs> in some ways yeah uh yeah, the the term mental illness i think generally gets thrown people think of it as someone who's completely schizo or like sure. their brain is shattered sure um but like there's a huge difference between a common cold and pneumonia yeah and you can have the mental illness equivalent of a cold and be completely functional yes and yeah. fine and go com- and yeah. and no one and no one does anything about that everyone just lets those people like oh that's normal that's tom being tom um so, uh, what was I trying to say? So, it's not something that we can, it's not something that you can pray away. It's not something that you can talk through and it just goes away. There, You can do all these things that are the equivalent of an antibiotic or an acetaminophen or something that... But there's something persistent there. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it's not a thing that, that you clean up once and it's gone. It's It's there. So, I have no idea why we started talking about this, but... I think it's to your point of I'm I'm aw- I'm aware of it and thank you, but it's it's just kind of I'm glad I'm having the opportunity to deal with it in this kind of methodical, yeah, incremental way. And if I didn't have the roundtable and coming back to this, I don't know if I ever actually would have unearthed any of this stuff and mm. and been able to start kind of putting putting to bed some of the things that happened a long time ago that I just be, that burrowed into my brain yeah. to become part of who I was. Well, it, you know, earlier I asked you if that was the, the steam in your locomotive, you know, and I, I think that, uh, you know, obviously we're, we are unique individuals, but I think there's a certain amount of motivation that shares a similar locus, which I think that you uh, that you felt a lack of acceptance for a specific reason, and um, I felt uh, probably well. I don't. I don't know exactly where. Well, actually, you know, one of your colleagues in the documentary film class did a very well well done film about your journey and the difficulties of your journey up to that point. And I think, honestly, I think that film played a role in in people understanding you better and accepting you you know and that's a few years ago now you know the landscape is different a lot different now than it was at that time but um what what i'm trying to say is long story short when i was a kid i was i was hardcore nerd like uh i was not socially uh i i i i looked for validation and acceptance and i did not get that from my peers pretty much at all like that's a sort of technical way of saying that i i didn't really have a lot of friends (laughs) and uh and i think that when that happens to you when you're at a formative part of your life it really does put inside you this this almost bottomless pit of looking for those things that you were denied and um it's interesting because I feel like within the last five or six years, I think um, I'm not saying everything's perfect by any means in my life, but I feel like I finally got to the bottom of that at some level. And, you know, there are people that don't like me, but I, I think that I have found that there are enough people in the world that like and respect me that I'm no longer obsessing about it and it's interesting because I think for me uh, 
part of what I'm doing right now is looking for what, where to find the steam in my locomotive. Mm. And uh, anyway, it's just it's interesting what drives us, and it it it, it would be wonderful if it was just totally intellectual <laughs> and we just decide but you know human beings are much more yeah we we work we're idiosyncratic you know and so you know we have super different stories but i like a lot of the things that you've related to and i'm not trying to make this interview about me but i definitely could resonate with the feelings I think that you've experienced in different ways and I'm sure at different levels and and I'm not trying to adopt your experience but I feel at some level I understand what you're talking about so something that I just thought of we started this whole thing talking about the the kind of for fun podcast that, yes. that I that I'm, I do out of my car with my friend my yeah. co-worker yeah. I don't think I ever would have been comfortable knowing I was recorded and just because she and I get very like we're very honest and we're very personal and you know we'll we'll go back and scrub out names and things but I have no problem with what I know I've said with the world hearing now that might change when something happens but um, I don't think I ever would have had that love even like right now we're we're having an emotional conversation with a microphone and a computer yeah and I know you're I know you enough to know that this will be out there in the world at some point <laughs> so yeah. I don't think I ever, I don't think two and a half years ago, I would have felt comfortable doing any of this. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I think you have been on a journey that I'm trying to remember specifically. I know you're in the film Life After Film School, but I'm trying to remember if it was from the first interview or the second interview that the clip came from. But I know that we talked about it. Like, that's one of, if there's a heartbreak of that project, I, I, I have so much, like, uh, there was there's so much there, you mm -hmm. know, and I I put little slivers, you know, like there's there's a gold mine for every nugget that made it in the film. I feel like, but there's a part of that that's heartbreaking, but there's a part of that that I feel like I don't regret, like I don't regret us having that conversation at all, you know. I feel like it was a good, um a good thing and it's fun to sort of have the three-peat here even though it's not on camera uh yeah yeah it's a cool thing so i guess as far as where this is all uh going when can we expect to hear your podcast and what is it going to be called <laughs> it, it's called head and home head and home that's right head and home um soon uh by the end know, of the year she and I just need to get together on a weekend and sit down and and do it. We we're we're more than ready for it to be out there. Um, you know, it, it's one of those things where even in this conversation, like there's definitely things that I've filtered and I haven't said, and um, but I definitely know in heading home, there's a different like there's a different set of words that I'll use or <laughs> um, right. So I just want to caution. I just want everyone to know that. Everyone is everyone is holding a, a, a charade. Everyone's holding onto a mask, yeah, or a set of masks that you interchangeably use. Right. Um, one of my goals is to try to minimize the amount of masks. Right. Now, I will always have a couple masks. I will have a certain mask that I wear in front of my wonderfully amazing Christian parents. Right. <laughs> um, you know, part of me like hurts that that there is a difference. Right. But the person who I feel like I am and the things that I resonate with would not 
would upset them. And so I feel like I do it out of respect for them. Yeah. Um, but so I'm just saying, if someone's going to rush out and listen to Head and Home, there, it's a slightly different flavor. <laughs> I, I, I think I understand what you're saying, but at I, least in general. I yeah. would, but I would say like in, but but what also kind of makes me excited is, look, it's two people just talking after having worked an eight hour day. Yeah. <laughs> or nine. Hour, so it's not it, it's not highly produced. It's not this thing where you're going to learn a whole bunch. It's just two people talking, and that's kind of the what I think is cool. And if someone doesn't like it, I don't care. Right. Because um, we didn't do it for that. Right. Um, but I'm I'm kind of excited for the more I think I do that and this, the more I think I'm kind of losing some of those masks. Yeah. I'm I'm feeling less. I'm just getting more comfortable with people seeing who I actually am and hearing what is in my head. Yeah. Well, what you're getting at is the question really of authenticity, and I think that um, well, I think you need to be as much as possible a a fully integrated person, if you will, like where you're not schizophrenic, but there is also audience. Like, you know what your audience, like you, uh, my kids versus my wife, they're both member. They're all members of my family, but I might talk about different things with my wife than I would talk about with my kids. Right. And maybe, I, maybe I would share the same topics with both, but there would be a different way that I would speak with each of mm -hmm. them about that. And uh, I'm not making a, I'm not trying to make a case for why we should be like totally guarded and whatever. But I, I think that, um, and I, th I think that the journey that you're on is a super positive one. I would not think that you should feel bad if you're still at least audience sensitive <laughs> at some level uh, about, um, well, I don't know, anything. <laughs> so to answer your question, our goal is ASAP, but I yeah. will make a commitment to your listeners here now by the end of the year. Okay. Um, we, we have a lot of fun. Well, that's that's sort we, of what my commitment is by the end of the year. So okay. by the time people hear this, it, could have it should podcasts. be out there. Yeah. We try to have a lot of fun, and we try not to take ourselves seriously at all. One of the things that I, we love to joke about is it's not a real podcast. We don't have sponsors, <laughs> but we're constantly are plugging people. Like stamps.com is our okay. is like the one our go to that we try to weave in. Like we try to surprise the other one by setting something up and then like the slow left turn into stamps.com. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we joke about uh, instead of the traditional social media, we're gonna have a we're gonna have our Google Plus. <laughs> you can like you can find the photo of what we're talking about on our Google Plus. I think um, they just announced they're wrapping that up. That's fine. <laughs> Uh, even yeah, better, on our, right? Yeah, you know our Foursquare. Um, anyway, <laughs> it's it, it's fun. Uh, if so, if you're if you're unafraid and interested in just hearing two people's ride home, check it out. Cool. Although there is, there is a woman up in I think northern Michigan that has a podcast called Heading Home. Okay. Heading home, but it has her name with you know, with so -and -so. her name, and she's yeah. a realtor. Um, so we try to plug her every now and then. <laughs> As our unofficial sister podcast. I see. Oh, nothing there you <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's stupid. Um, well, Thomas, I think that uh, this definitely ranks up there. Like a lot of the folks that I've been interviewing, I have not known for as long as you. And we have um, talked about more nuts and bolts kinds of things. And it's really refreshing to talk about things that are... Uh, you know, it, it's a podcast about careers, and in many ways, I think what we talked about today uh, is as relevant, if not more, uh, 
than any of the nuts and bolts stuff mm-hmm. that we would ever talk about. To be a well-rounded professional, you have to be a well-rounded person. Yes. Um, so uh, RuPaul has a show called RuPaul's Drag Race. Don't know if any of the listeners have seen it. She has a lot of catchphrases and a lot of words of wisdom and things, but her, for me, her main word of wisdom or catchphrase moniker, whatever you want to call it, is if you can't love yourself, how the hell are you going to love somebody else? Right. And and that just extends, I think, to every part of our lives. If if you if you can't deal with your own stuff, yeah. How are you going to deal with stuff at work or right. how are you going to be a good friend or a good partner or a good anything, artist. Um yeah. so so I think it it matters. I think we're in a time where people are actually talking about emotion and talking about thought. When I grew up, I felt like emotion was something you didn't talk about and you tried to minimize emotion. Yeah. Um and I'm not saying let's just be all emotional flailing people, but like, just be self-aware, be reflective, be figure, just have your feelings and then yeah. take some time later to be like, why did I do that? And yeah. how, and, and what, where's that coming from? And what's the larger issue? And I just, I, I feel like we're in a time where that is applauded and encouraged. Yeah. And, and I think that's important. Yeah. Well, I think you, you got to live in, you got to live in both. Uh, so Malcolm Gladwell talks about um, in his book, Blink, he talks about sort of the intuition and the quick intuition that we have about things and then the sort of slower logic. And he gives examples of how each of those can you lead you to terribly uh, uh, misguided <laughs> conclusions. Um he yeah he has great stories and you know you're you're talking uh, what you just said i think that people sometimes tend to either be overly emotional and not engage their practical uh the, the their their logical brains or they tend to be logical and try to pretend that they don't even have any mm-hmm. emotions and i think both of those strategies set you up for failure as well mm-hmm. um but I do think we're fortunate and that we're living in an era where I, I think more people are realizing that that's that both of the that that all of that is important, you know, mm-hmm. that like yeah. to be a healthy and, you know, to have a healthy career, you need to be a healthy person, to, it, you know, all of that stuff. It's the it's the work life blend. Yeah, it's it's even with yourself, like it's a blend. It's not a separation. It's not yes. a this and that. It's not. A, everything touches everything yes someone was saying the other day you don't have a a work life and a personal life because you're one person what's going on at home affects what's happening in the office right and vice versa and and you can't act like the second you leave and turn off your office light you're now a different person you're not you're not putting your your stuff in a basket underneath your desk and then getting to your car and taking out the basket of personal stuff it's all there all the time and and to your point, the authenticity, the more we can figure out how to blend all of that stuff together in a balanced and reasonable way, that's when we become our authentic, true self always. Yeah. I have to run to a session, but, yep. I, wa- but I wanted to say, yep. um, at the mixer, one of the questions that students asked, someone came up to me and said, what was your favorite teacher in, in college? And I don't have to think hard about it because it's you. It's David mm-hmm. George. Um back in college it's not fair to the other teachers because you were the probably the person that i had the most classes sure so it's a little it's a little on the nose but i have had the distinct privilege of i i feel like i've been in touch with you consistently since graduation yeah because my parents live here i would i would come out for them yeah or for friends or things 
um, afterwards, and I and I always felt compelled to come to the art school to, yeah. to come and say hi and stop in on a class or something. So that was kind of phase two of our relationship. Of just kind of like the casual passerby. Oh, remember that time? Haha, <laughs> it's funny. Great to see you're doing well. Yeah. I'm so excited that I'm. Well, we did phase three. I think phase three was collectively you and I figured figured the roundtable out. There's a lot of people that that helped along the way, but really, I feel like it would not have become what it is or even started if it wasn't me being where I was in life with an objective and you being in life with an objective. Yeah. And those two things coming together, saying, "Oh, here's what it is." And I th- and and so it was it, so phase three. I think was us together collaboratively working on something together that was very metaphysical yeah and spiritual in a way and emotional and and it it gave me something and i know it gave you something at a specific point for sure and it's been interesting with you you know taking us doing a different thing this time around yeah i've definitely missed your presence yeah um but i think it, it it's entered the phase four of our relationship because now we're sitting here very comfortably having these very personal conversations yeah um that I think is, I don't know, it, it's cool. And I feel like I know you a lot better. Um, I feel like I'm very comfortable letting you know who I am and letting you see the stuff. And I'm, I'm, I don't have many people in my life like that, that has that type of foundational structure. I well, I have zero people <laughs> like that <laughs> because starting out as a mentor professor, that's a very interesting layer. Yeah. And then to add the friend on top of that, but then to add kind of an emotional confidant, yeah. that's a really weird, um, not weird it, it, it's it's a very unique thing so i appreciate it i thank you for the way that you're approaching your life and your art and really life after school for you was reflective yeah was for looking and and inviting us to to kind of let you know to basically like fill in the forms for you <laughs> to instead yeah. of instead of you having to guess be like why don't you just tell me so i don't have to <laughs> figure it out right so it it's been a fun ride and i and i I greatly appreciate the friendship that, that and the collaboration that we have, and, and um, it, it's weird thinking about the future because the future is just kind of this big unknown billboard. Right. Um, but if if it's anything like what we've done before, I'm I'm excited for phase five through twenty. Yeah. Well, um, that's very humbling. Thank you, Thomas, for. Uh, it, it's so interesting because I think I know you have to run, and so I want to to be concise with this but i you know i remember when I, i'm not sure which event it was if you were talking about the one that you coordinated but at the there was a thing at the end close to the end of your senior year and i remember you recognized me in front of a group of people there and um i think you're one of the people who has been most willing to share your success and even the way that you presented the roundtable, I'm, I'm thrilled to be part of the roundtable. And and I think objectively, I helped to make it happen at some level, but you made it happen. And I think that your willingness to share in the success of it with me, and uh, with everybody, I think that's um, unquestionably one of the reasons that you are successful is because you don't hoard success you don't hoard validation and you're willing to share freely in the successes that your energy helps to propel uh, with everybody who's involved and to bring it right back around to the beginning 
when even though you have a huge bandwidth and you take off on so much yourself uh you know that everybody has to add the eggs to the cake (laughs) mix yeah and uh and that uh the, the result when when everybody when everybody has a role to play um that's that's how things can really happen so anyway Thanks for talking. Thank you for talking. It's a little bit hard to know how to wrap up an interview like that exactly, but I'll just say thanks, Thomas. It's uh, great to be able to talk with you again and to share your insights with the audience of this podcast. It is hard not to enjoy the company of someone who is so consistently invested in the success of everyone. Uh, Anytime you spend time with Thomas, you see that he really cares about the people around him and growing them. That kind of empathy and enthusiasm for shared success is really contagious. So thanks, Thomas, and I hope you'll join us again for the next episode of Pictures Up.